Hello, everyone, and shalom from Jerusalem. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents here with the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. And it's time for our weekly webinar. We're very pleased to have you. It's Thursday at 4 p.m. That means we need to be bringing something to you current, either current affairs uh, about our projects or Bible teachings. And this week, we're going to continue with part two at our look at, at Shavuot or Pentecost, the biblical feast of weeks that falls 50 days after Passover. It's a, a major biblical holiday and important for Christians because of what happened in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. And our guest speaker today is none other than our own president, Dr. Jurgen Bueller. He's, uh, we switched last week topics. He's going to talk today about the birth of the church, and he's coming to us from Germany, where he's on assignment for a few weeks there for uh, ministry and other reasons, and uh, I know it's good to be home in, in the Stuttgart area, Jurgen, and how are you doing? Yeah, thanks so much, David. Uh, it is indeed good to be back uh, in the area where I was born, I was uh, visiting actually just two days ago the gravesite of, of my parents and thank the Lord for uh, a godly heritage and uh, praise God for um, uh, this upbringing. So it's always good to reconnect with your past and uh, um, Germany, you see outside the sun is shining. Of course, I wish I would be in Jerusalem, but um Yes, it's good to be there. And David, thanks so much for, for shifting last week with me. This was a very busy week with the Jerusalem prayer breakfast and some other events going on. And I had to get ready for uh, my trip to Germany. So thanks so much for doing that. I really appreciate that. Yes. And uh, listen, if people are tuning in over on the Facebook Live or on uh, our YouTube channel, and you need translation, you can come over to the Zoom. Uh, we have Chinese, French, Portuguese, Spanish, and Thai translation over on the Zoom webinar. You can join us there. But otherwise, uh, Jurgen, I know I've heard you teach on Shavuot before. And as Jesus says, a good sage is going to bring a little old out of the cabinet and some new. And I think you've got some good new insights uh, and biblical understanding for us, please. Yeah, thanks, David. And um, today, when, you, when we speak about Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, how we call it in our Christian tradition, um, it's one of my favorite subjects because it has to do with uh, the most important um, agents that uh, keeps us going as believers, and that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, because without the Holy Spirit, we would have been, uh, we would not be able to carry out our walk with the Lord. It's like Zechariah said, it shall not be by power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And uh, Pentecost really is a feast for us Christians about the Holy Spirit. And uh, you might wonder, you know, if you read the story of Shavuot, you read the story of uh, Ruth, and uh, you read the story of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. You might wonder, where was the Holy Spirit when uh, the people of Israel was gathered um, at Mount Sinai? And uh, what is the meaning of the Holy Spirit even today in the 
uh, when we speak about the giving of the law, seems to be almost to, uh, for some people at least, it might be almost contradictory to speak about the law on, on the same holiday and then about the freedom of the spirit. And um, I think, you know, the Holy Spirit was, <coughs> excuse me, the Holy Spirit was quite right there um, in the book of Exodus in chapter 19. And I want to explain you uh, what really happened on that day in a moment. I want to start with uh, maybe a little bit an unusual passage that is not referred maybe necessarily uh, to uh, Shavuot, but I would like to go to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. And um, um, actually, I want to read from verse 9 onwards. And when he went, when I went up to the mountain, this is uh, Moses recapitulating the time in the world on Mount Sinai. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. On them were all the words that the Lord has spoken with you on the mountain on uh, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And there are two terms that are really important for me today, today which I would like to speak. Number one. And that's the first point of my talk. We will speak about those two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, which were the two tablets that the, the, the commandments that God gave to Israel that Moses returned from. And then secondly, all that took, took place when the Lord came down on fire on the mountain on the day of the assembly. It's called in Hebrew, Yom HaKahal, uh, the day when the people were gathering. And this word, Yom HaKahal, uh, those of you who are taking notes, it's actually reoccurring in the exact same context. Uh, also in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 4, we can read this. This is actually open right now here in my Bible on the opposite page. And he says, the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of fire, on the Yom HaKa'al, on the day of the assembly, and then in chapter 18, verse 16, again in the very same context, also in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 16, again, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. And... Um, what we need to understand what happened on that day when Israel was standing in front of Mount Sinai. Uh, we read they in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, they arrived in the third month on that very day. They arrived on Mount Sinai. And uh, the rabbis in Israel, they agree um, when it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, they arrived on that very day. Um, that this means that they arrived on the first day of the month there on Mount Sinai. And then there were uh, three days of uh, going back and forth where God spoke to Moses. He went up and came back again and they got up and they got back, back again where the Lord spoke to Moses, to Israel, sanctify yourself. And then on the third day when they were on this on this mountain, the Lord appeared on on uh, on 
Mount Horeb and the, the Hebrews, Hebrew uh, sages, they say this was exactly 50 days after uh, um, the day of the first fruit, when the first fruit offering during Passover was being uh, sacrificed. So um, they are counting 50 days, and then on the 50th day, something happened. Fire came down from heaven, and uh, the the Lord spoke with an audible voice. We read this right now in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 16. It says, on that day you actually came to me, and you were begging with me. He says, please tell the Lord not to speak to us anymore with an audible voice, because we cannot stand uh, to hear the voice of the Lord. And if you read this actually in, in Deuteronomy, it's in, in chapter 20, you hear how God spoke audibly the Ten Commandments from heaven. And what an awesome experience this must have been. The whole assembly was standing in front of that, in that mountain. Fire was on the top. They knew Moses is up there. They were not sure if he actually would make it back alive. But uh, God was meeting with him there up on the mountain. Uh, the Bible says when he returned from this experience, his face was shining. So intense was the glory of God. And all of Israel heard the voice of the Lord. And I believe what happened on that day is that they heard when they heard the commandments of the Lord, thou shalt thou shalt not murder, they sh thou shalt not give false testimony, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife or possessions or field. I believe a spirit of conviction was coming over the people. It's almost like if somebody would place a mirror in front of their face and they were convicted that they cannot stand the holiness of God. And they almost like Isaiah when he wasn't standing in the front of the presence of those seraphim. He says, woe unto me because I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I believe this was exactly the experience of Israel when they were standing there on the mountain of God. And they begged with Moses on the day of the assemblies, please don't speak to, but please ask the Lord not to talk to us in such a way anymore. You speak to him. And um, Deuteronomy chapter 10, or in chapter 9, what I was reading to you, Deuteronomy 9 verse 10, we in a way see the outcome of that first day of Pentecost, uh, he says, I returned back from the mountain with two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And it's quite interesting. The Bible doesn't speak too much about the, about the finger of God, but there are um, a number, very few passages where the word of God actually refers to the, to the finger of God. And um, um, one passage, for example, you can find in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Luke chapter 11, verse 20, uh, this is the story where the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus in which authority he's carrying out uh, his miracles and casting out demons. And some of them said, well, I know how he's doing that. He actually himself is demon-possessed, and he's casting out demons just by another demon. And Jesus says, be very careful to say something like that. He spoke about the sin of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God, here it is again, the finger of God. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
So we see Jesus says, I'm casting out demons by the finger of God. And uh, so the big question now is, what is the finger of God? If you read the same passage of the story I was just reading from Luke chapter 11, if you read the same passage in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, uh, Jesus repeats the very same sentence. But here, I hope you realize the difference. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has kingdom of God has come upon you. And it's quite interesting. It's exactly the same story, the same setting with the Pharisees. In Luke, Jesus says, if I'm casting out the spirits by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Matthew, very same story, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know the, the kingdom of God has come to you. And um, since we know the Bible cannot contradict itself, it must be the same story. It is a very easy mathematical equation that you can extrapolate here, where, God, where you can take those two verses together and you realize that the finger of God is nothing else than the move of the Holy Spirit. And in a way, you know, David was speaking last week about the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit, that those two things go together. This is another very powerful passage where Jesus says, you know, if you see the manifestation of the kingdom of God, demons being cast out, damage being done to the kingdom of the darkness and evil, you know, this is a manifestation that the kingdom of God has come among you. And uh, here, Jesus, and that's my point here, I really want to raise Jesus equates the finger of God with the Holy Spirit. And what this means, when Moses says, when I was up there on the mountain, he says, I was receiving the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And I believe with those two passages in Matthew and Luke, we could equally say that actually the Holy Spirit was right up there on the mount of God when Moses received the the tablets of, of the law of God, and when he took them back, there was the Holy Spirit in every little sentence, every word he was involved in the writing of the law there on Mount Sinai. Now, what is the relevance for us today? I want you to open your Bible if you have them with you, or if you take, if, you, if not, please take notes and read it again at home and study it yourself. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, there we find quite an amazing um, saying of Paul, and he's speaking here about uh, the ministry of the Spirit. Now listen to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, I'm reading from verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendations, speaks to the church in Corinth. You are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by everybody. That means Paul was saying, you know, when people ask him, he said, well, can you get a letter of recommendations? Sometimes even here at the embassy, we do this when staff are joining us. We usually ask of a letter of recommendation from the pastor or from uh, the previous employer or for both, because we want to know who is the person. He says, Paul said, I really don't need a letter of recommendation because you our letter of recommendation. People need to visit the church in Corinth. 
And by watching the people in Corinth, they can see what type of ministers, what type of people we are. And then he says, you are a letter from Christ, he says to the church in Corinth. And I want you to take this personally, you, not just for the Corinthians, but as you are listening, this is a word what I hope you can say about yourself. You are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Now listen to that. This is very important now. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, what Paul is telling here to the church in Corinth, he says, you actually, your life, the way how you carry yourself in the world, you are a letter of recommendation. You are an epistle of God that everybody can read when they are engaging you. And he says, the way how this epistle is being written, he says, is that the Holy Spirit was writing his commandments on your hearts. And it says they weren't written by the Holy Spirit on tablets of stone, but they were written on your human hearts. And that's quite an important statement. What Paul here is taking is taking in a way the symbolism, the language from Mount Sinai, where Israel received the tablets of stone, and he applies it here for the life of a, 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 a Christian believer who received the Holy Spirit. He says, actually, you are those tablets. You are this letter where the Holy Spirit is writing his commandments on your heart, again, with the finger of God or with the um, Holy Spirit, so to speak. So in a way, you know, if you look at the day of Pentecost and if you are looking at what was taking place on Mount Sinai, in a way, you can say almost the same thing took place. Moses received the uh, tablets of, of stone written by the finger of God with the commandments of the Lord. And I believe what happened on that day on the upper room is that God wrote his commandments on the hearts of Apostle Peter, on the hearts of Apostle Thomas, on the hearts of Mary, on the hearts of Mary Magdalene, whoever was there. And they left that room that morning as changed people. Then you read this so amazingly in the Gospel of Acts, you know, just a few days earlier, we read in the Gospels, they were still fighting with each other. Who is the greatest among us? They were discussing. Peter the, was, wasn't even able to give a testimony about Yeshua, even before this simple uh, slave servant. And he says, no, no, I don't know this Jesus. And after the Holy Spirit came upon them, we see how the law of God was written on their hearts. They were different people. And suddenly it says they were together with one heart and one spirit, not talking anymore about who is the greatest or not, not being afraid of the gospel, that same Peter that was afraid to preach the gospel, he got up with boldness in Acts chapter 3, and he says, brothers and sisters, listen to me. And there was an audience of 3,000 people listening to me, to, listening to him, and he was not afraid at all. Why? Because the Holy Spirit transformed his life. And one last point in that regard you know, this is um, this fulfillment of God writing the laws with the Holy Spirit on our heart. This is the core of the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that God was giving to Israel for all those centuries. If you go with me to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, 
Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. And God says, and I will give them one heart, one, one heart. I make them one man, like in the book of Acts, and my new spirit I put within them. And I will remove the heart of stones, not any more tablets of stone, but I will give them a heart of flesh. That's exactly what Peter, what Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And then listen, that they might walk in my statutes and keep my rules. That means when the Holy Spirit comes into the hearts of believers, he is writing his commandments his uh, rules into our heart. That means he's going to change us. You might have been an angry person. You might have been a person that could not help himself but to steal and to say the say one lie after the other. But when the Holy Spirit gets hold of you, he will transform you. And suddenly uh, the character of God will be manifested in your life. God says, I will fill you with my Holy Spirit give you not any more tablets of stone, but tablets of flesh. I will write my commandments upon them, and you will be a changed person. Exactly the same thing, by the way, Ezekiel chapter 36, very quickly. Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, where God speaks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will put a new spirit upon you. I will remove the heart of stone. Again, uh, the same parallelism between heart of flesh and heart of stone, tablets of stone, tablets of our human hearts. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Uh, that's Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And the following, Ezekiel 36, 26. And the following, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put in you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful, to obey my rules. Again, you know, the result of this inpour, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit is a transformed heart. And that's why, you know, if you think about it, uh, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, uh, this he was the great, one of the greatest Torah scribes of his time. And he came in John chapter 3 but to, at night to Jesus. And Jesus went straight forward to him. He says, well, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus asked him, he says, well, how, how, what, what, what do you mean with being born again? How can somebody go back in the womb of his mother? And Jesus was marveling. He said, you should know that. And why should he have known it? Because all those passages, they speak about it. They say, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it really will be, you will be a new person because you receive a new heart from God. It will be really like born again. All the prophets, they speak about them. And one last passage I want to give in that context, and that's maybe the most important, that really speaks about this rebirth in the context, like I, I mentioned it to you, this is Jeremiah chapter 31. You know, sometimes uh, in Israel, people tell us, well, you invented a lot of new terminology in the church, and it's not really too Jewish anymore. And uh, you speak about the new covenant. This is almost anti-Semitic, what somebody told my wife recently. But new covenant, this is a term that you actually find in the Tanakh, 
The Jewish prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, Behold, days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with you and with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. This covenant they broke. What was this covenant? They received tablets of stone from Mount Sinai that God gave them. But God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And what is the nature of this new covenant? Verse 33, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in them. I will write it with my finger, with the Holy Spirit. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their, their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Oh, you need to know the Lord, for they all shall know me. And this is quoted, of course, many times in the book of Hebrews, where Paul, where the writer of Hebrews says twice, he says, this is exactly the covenant. This is the dispensation we are under in the believers of the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he came, came right in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, changing, transforming our heart turning us into new people. And I want to encourage you, and this is my first point that I want to make with you today, even to invite the Holy Spirit afresh in your heart. You know, sometimes I'm coming from a Pentecostal charismatic family. My father was a Pentecostal pastor. Sometimes as Pentecostal believers, you are tempted to, when you think about the Holy Spirit, who thinks very much about the gifts of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But I believe the number one work the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in us is that he wants to write his laws, his commandments in our heart. He wants to change and transform our hearts. He wants to make us into different people. And I want to invite you, even if you feel you need this type of touch of God in your life, even invite the Holy Spirit. And I just feel right now I should pray for you. And Father, I do ask you, even right now, wherever people might be watching this program and listening to this world, and whether I even sense, Father, this is exactly what I need for my life. I ask you, wherever they might be, Father, that you fill them right now with your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Baptize them with your power. Come upon them, Father, with the power of the Holy Ghost and turn them into other people. Turn them into this letter of recommendation where people can read the character of God in them. In the powerful and in the mighty name of Yeshua, I pray. Now, this is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, how we started. This is the first part I wanted to share with you. And I gave you an abbreviated version of that, what normally I teach uh, uh, on that. But it says, and the Lord gave the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God to, to Moses. And then it says, on that day when he spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly, Yom HaKahal. And there is a very interesting and a very important tradition that the Jewish people have in regard to Shavuot. And it's a very similar tradition that we have also in the church. The Jewish people say there on Mount Sinai, when God came down on fire on, on this mountain, and when he gave the Torah, the law to Israel, 
they say this was the birthday of the Jewish people. On that day, Israel became a nation. Of course, they existed before. There were the 12 tribes, and there were those uh, more than a million people, some say even up to 3 million people that came, uh, came out of Egypt with Moses. But when God appeared to them on Mount Sinai and, so to speak, gave them their national divine constitution, where God says, that's how I want you to live, and where God came down on fire, they say this was the day when we as a nation have been born. And many Christian commentators say exactly the same thing about the church. They say, day of Pentecost, this was the birthday of the church. So it's quite interesting that there are so many parallelisms between Shavuot and Pentecost in our tradition and Jewish tradition. And I believe it's really the day of the founding of the church. And um, if you subscribe to our magazine, if you are not subscribed yet to the ICJ, uh, maybe Kay, if we can put a link down in the lower third how, of our website, how you can subscribe it. I just wrote an article about uh, the early congregation and what that means for us today. And I would like to speak a little bit on the very first congregation that was gathered in Jerusalem. I'm doing right now a little bit of study on, the, on church history. And I must say, just a few days ago, I was quite upset by a book that I was reading because the writer said, well, uh, the church needed to evolve for a couple of centuries until we really reached the real church that we know today, because the early church was still a very primitive church and it needed to evolve even further. And I absolutely did not like that. I believe what we read here in the word of God in Acts chapter 2 and the following, this was the church how God intended it to be. And this is the model church where we need to go, to, go back to. And this is where we find the roots of our faith. And there was is one characteristic that I really want to highlight today. And you will see at the end why I feel this is, is so important for us today, is for us to understand what type of church was this that's what that was gathering in Jerusalem um, when the Holy Spirit was being poured out. If you go with me to Acts chapter 2, of course, in the first verse, we see when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot arrived, the Holy Spirit was being poured out. There was a wind, there was fire, very similar to what happened on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And uh, I want to read from uh, verse 42 onwards, which gives you the characteristic of the church. And I want to focus in particular on one uh, little sentence there. And he says, and they, they, they devoted themselves, that's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread, just a little comment here. This was not a new invention of the church. Uh, the breaking of bread was taking place in every Jewish family, even until today, not only on every, every evening of Shabbat, Erev Shabbat, where you have two loaves of bread and you have a glass of wine that you are uh, drinking. And the Jewish people, they say until today, every Shabbat table represents the altar in the temple. And those two loaves represent the sacrifice. And this is exactly, you know, what Jesus said. He says, take and eat. This is my body. This is the sacrifice that was broken for you. So they were breaking the bread every single day. That means they kept to their tradition that they knew as Jews. And it's basically also taking place on the outgoing of Shabbat. 
Shabbat. Whenever Shabbat is uh, is being finished, um, um, you have to know that the the Jewish day, and we will come back to that, starts with the evening. That means a new day starts when the sun goes down and the sun disappears. That's the beginning of the new day because God says in the book of Genesis, it was evening and morning, a new day. So Jewish tradition says the new day starts with the evening. So on the evening when Shabbat starts, they are breaking the bread. And in the evening when Shabbat goes out, when the sun has set, set they have something which is called the Havdalah blessing. They are lighting again. There will be candle lighting. There's the breaking of bread. There's the drinking of wine. And it's the outgoing of Shabbat. But you also could say it's the beginning of the first day of the week. And so it says here they were breaking the bread in prayers. And then it says, and, and they... Uh, with great awe, they saw signs and wonders being taken place through the apostle. They had all things in common. It means it really was a radically changed community at that time. And then it says in verse 46, and day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking the breads in their home. They were attending the temple together, breaking the bread at home. And it's quite amazing, you know, when the Holy Spirit was being pulled out and when the early disciples gathered, there was no urge in the heart and in the mind of the early disciples where they said, well, maybe uh, we shouldn't go to the temple anymore. This is the old covenant or this is the old way how to do things. Maybe we should find a new place of gathering or meeting. No, the Bible says day by day they went to the temple. And if you go to the very next chapter, chapter 3 in the book of Acts, in the beginning you see a, a very practical example of that. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a lame man from birth was being carried there, and they laid him at the beautiful gate. Actually, I just did a TV recording. I believe in the coming days you might see it on our webpage. You can still see the beautiful gate, or the archaeological remnants of that gate, where exactly that miracle was taking place. You can see it until today. But what I want to tell you here, chapter 3, verse 1, John and Peter, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So what was the ninth hour? Um, this wasn't uh, uh, nine o'clock um, in the morning, but this was the time. This was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This was the time when the Jewish people would bring the afternoon sacrifice in the temple. Um, every day you can read it in, in the book of Leviticus, Two lambs need to be slaughtered in the temple. This was the daily sacrifice, the regular sacrifice. One was at the third hour, that was nine o'clock in the morning, and the other one was at the ninth hour, uh, that is three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's quite amazing that even though Jesus, their lamb, died for their sins and they knew they are servants of the new covenant, they still stuck to the same calendar. They still went at the same time and there was a sacrifice in the temple. They decided that's where we need to go to. We will see later on Paul kept that tradition. He always wanted to make sure to be in the temple for the holidays in Israel. So they kept their, their, their tradition. I want you to really understand that there was no 
talk about, oh, we have to change uh, the holiday Passover to Easter, or maybe Shavuot, we should call it Pentecost, and maybe we shouldn't celebrate Shabbat anymore. But they stayed to be Jewish. The first church in Jerusalem was a through and through Jewish church that was gathering here in the land. If you go with me a little bit further down, um, and um, uh, if we go to chapter 5, again, you know, they were together. It says here, chapter 5, verse 12, many signs and wonders were carried out together. And this is now probably half a year, one year later, and they were all gathering in Solomon's porch. That's again, that's in the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't build a new church building where they were gathering, but the temple, the place that God gave to the Jewish people, still remained the gathering point of the early disciples. And then in chapter um, in, uh, in chapter ten, we read about how um, uh, the next day they were on the journey approaching the city. This is chapter ten, verse nine, and Peter went up on the housetop. Acts chapter 10, verse 9, Peter went up on the house to about the sixth hour to pray. And it's quite amazing when I was reading that there are three prayer times that the Jewish people are praying. You remember the story of Daniel when there was the command uh, not to pray anymore publicly to any other God except uh, to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar was setting up. The very first thing that you read Daniel was doing, he was not allowing himself to be stopped by such a foolish law. He went straight back to his prayer closet, didn't do it in secretly, opened the window that everybody could see it, and he continued praying three times a day. And that's until today, many Jewish people, they keep praying at nine o'clock in the morning. That's the time of the morning sacrifice. They will pray at noontime. That's when Peter was praying right here in Yap in Yope, and they are going to and they were praying in the afternoon. That means they stuck stuck to their tradition. They don't say didn't say oh we need new prayer times and new tradition. They just kept doing what they have been doing before, and uh, this characterized the church. If you go to, uh, let me give you two more ex examples. Um, chapter ten, which is quite uh, Acts chapter ten. Um, this is quite an interesting uh, story. I, I read you a longer passage because there are a number of gems in that. And after the uproar ceased, this was the uproar that was in the city of Ephesus. I'm reading from Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia. And again, through those regions, and it, uh, it, it was a great encouragement, and he came to Greece, and then he spent three months there, and a plot was made against him by the Jews, and he was about to sail to Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. Now listen to that. So part of the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonian, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy of the Asians, Tychicus and Tophimus, they went on ahead and were waiting for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the day of unleavened bread. So this was the time of Passover. This was a marker in his calendar. And in five days, we came to them in Troas. 
And then he went out in Troas. We will come to that in a minute. He met with the believers. He was preaching there. And after the end of that meeting, we'll speak about that in a second. He says, we actually did not go to the city of Ephesus. Uh, verse 15, chapter 20, still verse 15. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. Um, for Paul has decided, verse 16, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, at the day of Pentecost. Now, this we are talking about Pentecost right now. And it's quite amazing that Paul, in his missionary trips, he actually arranged his calendars according to the Jewish holidays. And he said, and that's not the only passage. There is another passage where I did the same. He said, I want to be back in Jerusalem for the Jewish holidays. I want to be back in Jerusalem to be in the temple commemorating the giving, the giving of the Torah. And then also, of course, commemorating what was taking place in the church on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was being poured out. And the interesting thing was that he didn't go alone there. He, it says here he took a whole bunch of nine people with him. If you read through the names, Timothy is the only one which had a Jewish mother, but everybody else, it seems most commentators agree, they all were Gentiles. And it took a great effort. He said, you need to go with me. I'm going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and I want you to be with me. I want you to see how we are celebrating Pentecost in Jerusalem. This were key people. This were the people who he later, like Timothy and others, he placed in into those churches to become the pastors and bishops of the churches. And he wanted to make sure that they get the Jerusalem experience. Also, what the Bible is telling us, that he never arrived empty-handed in Jerusalem. He always collected funds from the churches. He told them in Corinth, the church in Corinth, he says, you know, when I go to Jerusalem, he says, I want not to come empty-handed. Please prepare a generous offering that I can take with me from your church to the saints in Jerusalem. So he took funds to Jerusalem. He took Gentile believers with him to Jerusalem because he wanted them to experience the city, the land of promise, the place where the roots of their faith was. And it's quite amazing. It took just two centuries, maybe even just one century, when all that was lost. And maybe this might be, David, another part of a a future webinar that we should do. How did this break and this rift between the church and the Christian Christianity happen? But you see maybe through those passages that the church had no idea whatsoever to separate them from, from Judaism or from their biblical tradition. They celebrated them and they even included Gentiles in them. One last uh, comment that I want today want to make in chapter 2. 20 verse 7, uh, chapter 20 verse 7, the same chapter that we were reading right now. He says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathering together to break the bread, Paul talked with them, intending to part, depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech to midnight. Now, I want you to note one, one thing. That there are many people who say, oh, here we have it. This was the invention of Sunday. Uh, they didn't meet on Shabbat anymore but they were gathering on Sunday. But you remember what I, I told you before, in Jewish custom, 
new days are beginning with the evening. Um, Erev Shabbat is the beginning of Shabbat. It starts when the sun is going down. And then I told you, even at the outgoing of Shabbat, in the beginning of the first day, there was the blessing. It's happening until today. I was living for many years opposite the synagogue. And I saw it with my own eyes every single week being carried out. There was the Haftalah blessing. They were breaking again the bread. They were lightening the candle. They were blessing the bread and the wine, and they were blessing the new, new week. Um, it, you could say, well, it was Saturday evening, but according to Jewish tradition, it was already the beginning of the first day of the week. It was Saturday night when the first day of the week started. And we read here in the book of Acts, that's where they were meeting on the outgoing time of Shabbat, when the new day was starting in the evening. Why did they not meet on Shabbat? Very simple, because uh, in, on Shabbat, Every Jew knows that there's only a very limited amount of distance that he can walk by foot. If you had a congregation like here in Troas, which was quite a sizable city at that time, archaeology, archaeologians have discovered and, and excavated a gigantic city. There was uh, a huge place. And there was probably only one prayer house where they were gathering. If they would have met on Shabbat, they needed to break their tradition and walk longer than they actually normally would allow to walk on Shabbat. And that's why they waited. And that's what many Israeli and Messianic Bible scholars also said. That's why they waited for the outgoing of Shabbat in order that they could walk and they would gathering once the sun was setting in the evening, and then it says in the next day, Paul wanted to leave, and he actually was going to preach for a long time. He was preaching until midnight, and then the story of this boy was taking place. He was falling asleep, and David, that's a good encouragement. If people fall asleep, even during our messages, it also happened to Paul, so we are in good company there. And they, this guy was falling asleep, and the message of the great Apostle Paul and he was falling down and was resurrected. Quite amazing. If you read that to the end, Paul didn't say, well, uh, maybe I should stop now. I'm preaching too long here. But he says he continued preaching until the sun was rising actually in the morning. So uh, they had very long meetings uh, at that time. But when they were gathering at the first day, this was no intention to find a new holiday for the church to meet. But this was just in line with their Jewish tradition. It was the, the beginning of the week. They have the law blessing at the outgoing of Shabbat. And that's where the early believers were gathering. Now, the church in the beginning, in the third century, sadly enough, there were not many Jewish people there anymore. And the, the church wanted to separate from anything Jewish. They took this passage and said, okay, here we have it. It's a new holiday. We have to meet now on Sundays. It's a new Shabbat. But that was never the intention of the apostles to find, to, to, to invent a new holiday for the church uh, together. Now, why do I'm telling that? And David, I realize we are running, uh, we, this is uh, uh, far too long I've been speaking here today. But I want to share about something else. And this is, uh, you know, sometimes people are asking me, they said, Jürgen, you know, what, what does the New Testament say about the Messianic churches? Or what does the Messianic churches to do with us today? And uh, um, I want to speak a little bit about what God is doing 
in the land of Israel and how important that is. Now, when people ask me about what did the Bible say about Messianic churches, uh, or ch what they mean is churches of Jewish believers, Jews who believe in Yeshua. And it's in, in many areas a controversial subject, not only for Jewish people in Israel, they don't like them because they believe they're abandoning their faith, but also many Christians, they don't like them. For example, the German Lutheran Church, they actually actually exclude Messianic Jews from their big gatherings. They don't allow them to give seminars or lectures. They say, no, we don't want you. It's too a, a too subject, a too touchy subject for us. And you know, when I think about that, he says the, the, the early apostle, they would be outraged about something like that because as I showed you right now, the early church was a completely Jewish church. The question for them was not, what do you think about Messianic believers? But the big scandal and the big new thing where they had to get their heads around was exactly the opposite. What should we do with those Gentiles who start believing like us? That was the big challenge what they had. So to think, oh, this is a new challenge, in a way, you know, if it's not a new challenge, we are coming back to how it all started 2,000 years ago. And when you want to ask, you know, what Paul said about that, we have to go to Romans 11, and then I just want to make a few comments about what's happening today. In Romans uh, chapter 11, Paul is referring, he's using a, a um, um, you can call a parable, uh, in order to explain the church that it consists of both Gentiles and Jews. And I want you, if you have your Bible with you, to open, please, to Romans chapter 11. And I'm at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here. But please bear with me. Now I'm speaking to the Gentiles in verse 13. Here it says, now this is what I'm saying now. This is to us Gentiles to understand. That's not so much, wasn't so much a message to the Jewish people, but he says, I want you Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, this is a word for you today. It's a word for me. He says, if some of the branches, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and he's using here the famous parable of the olive tree, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, was grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, if you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. And then you will say, well, the branches were broken off so that, that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith. So do not become proud by, by, by fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You know, that's quite a, a warning Paul gives us. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, now these are the branches that were cut off, the noble branches, um, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them back in again. And for if it were, if, if you who were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree was grafted in 
contrary to nature uh, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in into their own tree? And then later on, he says, and there will come a time, he says, where all Israel shall be saved. And the, and what Paul is basically saying is, he says, it's not so much, you know, how do we deal with the messianic believers? He says, the big challenge is more how to deal with the Gentiles. And what he was telling the church was revolutionary. He says, those Gentiles actually taken and crafted in that in that tree that at that time was a predominantly Jewish tree. And God says he gives you equal rights with the Jewish people to be in that tree. Now, over the last 2,000 years, this tree became a dominantly Gentile tree. And the Gentiles got exactly like Paul predicts here. They got arrogant. They got pride against the Jewish people. They started to speak bad about the Jews. They became anti-Semites. They became replacement theologians like Paul is warning them. Don't look down on those broken off trees and say, well, I'm now the new Israel. He says, don't do that. Why? Because God, he says, one day God is going to bring those branches back in the tree. And Paul puts incredible significance to that. He says, when this is happening, when those original branches will be crafted back in into the tree, he says, amazing things are going to take place. He says here, for, for example, again, chapter 11, verse 12, if there are trespass means the riches of the world, how much more their fullness. That means if they are broken off, God actually gave space that you as Gentile could be crafted in. Think about it. If they will be crafted back in, how much more will the blessing be? Verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will be their acceptance? Their recrafting in, you could say, mean, but life from the dead. That means Paul gave incredible significance to that. That he said he understood one day those branches will be crafted in. And if you subscribe to our magazine, you will see that parallel to the restoration of Israel to the Zionist movement that started basically, it's quite interesting. It started with Christianity, it started with evangelical Bible believing Christians who first understood that God one day would bring the Jewish people back to their land. If you are listening to that, and if you are Jewish and say, well, what an arrogance. I just heard Prime Minister Netanyahu a week ago saying exactly that to a group of evangelical believers. He says, you evangelicals, it's important for us to know that, he said, you evangelicals were Zionists before we Jews were Zionists. And it's quite amazing when the Zionist movement started, when, when preachers like John Wesley and like uh, Charles Burchens and others, the Puritans and the Pietists, the Moravians, and even the early Pentecostals, they all were devout Zionist believers believing in the restoration of Israel. So when this movement started within the Bible-believing churches across Europe and North America, something else was taking place. They suddenly realized well, not only that God is going to restore the Jewish people, but they found out exactly what I was sharing you today. They re realized while the church in the beginning, they didn't start in the Vatican in Rome. It wasn't the Roman church, but it was a Jewish church that started in Jerusalem. And they started to go back to the Jewish roots. And that's why 
if you go into in, in, into theology books, I'm just giving you a number of of, uh, of names. There were people like John Chill. He was living, I have it here, 1697 to 1771, or J.B. Lightfoot, 1821 to 1889. What did they do? They wrote Bible commentaries that were soaked in rabbinical writings. They said, we need to go back to Jewish history, to Jewish text in order to understand the Bible better. In Germany, in, in, in three universities, at least in Berlin, in Leipzig, in Halle, there were the institutes that were called Institutum Judaicum. The main purpose of those institutes was to immerse themselves in rabbinical literature in order to understand the Bible in a better way. One of their leaders was a gentleman called Franz Delich. He happened to translate the New Testament into Hebrew even before um, Eliezer ben Yehuda started to re, uh, revive the Hebrew language. And uh, one of my Jewish friends said this this. Bible translation of Franz Delich of the New Testament was actually a very helpful tool for, tool for Eliezer ben Yehuda to actually formulate some of the modern Hebrew phrases. And uh, that means there was an amazing movement taking place. And then also in 18, I have to get the date right, in 1882, in the, in the country of Moldavia, that's bordering of Ukraine today. There was a gentleman called Joseph Rabinovich, and he was Jewish. He was the son of a rabbi. He came to faith in Yeshua, and he, reading the Bible, he just found out what I was sharing with you today, that the early church was a Jewish church. He decided, I'm not going to join one of those denominations that exist. I'm going to have my own Jewish prayer house in Yiddish. They had their prayers in Yiddish. They had uh, Jewish traditions. And many people say this was the beginning of the Messianic movement in our modern days, going back to 1882. And since then, uh, in Europe, the numbers have been growing. Uh, that's a timid growth. One of the, one of the tragic uh, facts of the Messianic movement is that there were quite a number of them in uh, that um, that gathered in the beginning of the 20th century. And very sadly to say that when the Holocaust came, the Nazi Germany killed all the Jews. Those people, they all ended up into the gas chambers of Auschwitz or other uh, destruction camps across Europe. They were murdered together with their Jewish brothers. Their faith in Jesus didn't save them in Christian Europe. The land of reformation turned against them and wouldn't recognize them. Some of the evangelical denominations even said, we don't want them in our church. We don't want Jews sitting in our church meetings. How tragic that story was. But this was... Uh, the story over the last 100 years in a, in a really, literally, in a nutshell. And today here in Israel, we have um, estimates, they range between 7,000 to, one number says, up to 30,000, which I believe is a little bit exaggerated, of Messianic believers here in this land. And why are they so important? You know, I talked recently uh, to somebody in the Knesset, and he said, oh, Jürgen, you shouldn't be so well connected with the Messianic churches. I replied to him, he said, you really want us to be connected to them because this is the way how the church established. This is the biggest antidote against replacement theology, that there is a church today 
today that actually represents the very roots of Christianity as a Jewish church that was immersed in Jewish culture. And that's why we appreciate also what's happening today in this land so much, because Israel is the very root of our faith. It's not the Vatican, it's not a Geneva, or it's not Wittenberg, but our roots are laying right here, now not here in Stuttgart, but where David is sitting right there in, in Jerusalem. And that's where the foundations of Christianity can be found on the Yom Kehillah, on the day of the assembly, when the Jewish people was established, a Messianic, a Jewish church was starting in Jerusalem. And then over the last 2000 years, branches from around the world, we have them today in this gathering from China and Portugal and Argentina and Germany, wherever you are joining us today. And today we see that God starts to bring the original branches back into that tree. And what exciting time that is to be alive. Thanks so much. I took a little bit too long time, three minutes past five o'clock, but back to you, David. No, no, it's perfect timing. Well, you did very well. You packed a lot in there, Jürgen. Thank you so much. And get a nice drink of that apple juice there to uh, catch up. But uh, so much, uh, everyone, I think uh, the questions that are coming in is, uh, how can I watch this again? Where can I watch it? Where can I watch last week's and all? So uh, I, we've given some information there uh, about uh, our uh, ICEJ official Facebook page or on our official uh, YouTube channel. All of our webinars are posted there every week. You can go there. And I think it is the one you'll be able to change, uh, select a language, uh, whether it's the audio that we've got now recorded or perhaps the um, uh, a, a uh, underwrite uh, where, where you get the text through some sort of system, uh, the Otter system, you can follow it through subtitles. And uh, Jürgen, uh, so many things I could respond here. Um, you know, this thing of uh, this guy who, who translated the New Testament in Hebrew, and then it became, uh, um, you know, a good source for Eliezer ben Yehuda. Sometimes I hear Israelis in Hebrew uh, when, when they talk to you in English, they're using phrases from the New Testament, when salt is lost its savor, and sheeps and goats, and I, I don't know, there's all sorts of phrases I hear Israelis use that are straight from the words of Jesus, they're straight out of the Gospels, and they don't even know it, you tell them, well, that's straight out of the Gospels, really, and it may be the, this New Testament translation that, uh, that Ben, uh, Ben Yehuda read. It's quite interesting. You you probably heard that. You, you need to unmute. It's our common friend Sif. He actually uh, he he made he brought my attention to that. He's an Israeli, secular Israeli. Yeah, yeah. As he says, you know, your Bible translation of Fred Stelich actually helped shaping the Hebrew language. Uh, um, and he had some inspiration of Eli to Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Yeah, so yeah. I, I learned that first from a from a secular side. Yeah, and uh, when you just mentioned that the the presence of a messianic Jewish body here in the land, how it is an antidote for replacement theology, Christian anti-Semitism. I've seen it. Uh, very clearly demonstrated, and I speak to a lot of like college students, Christian college students, that some of them are 
very rabid anti-Israel. They're part of, you know, BDS, apartheid, and you speak to these groups. And uh, several times I've taken uh, a young messianic believer, they're sort of their age. Uh, I, I've been taking Shiloh Ben Hod, who of course is a worship leader, but he served in the army here. He, he, you know, he gives them simple answers to some of the tough, tough questions. And after a few minutes of seeing him and experiencing him, that you're not getting those those mean mean spirited tough justice uh, injustice all these questions that you get it really disarms them they don't know what to do with with these messianic believers what do you do to them and it is a matter of of uh, you know God is in the process of re restoration we're not a, a church evolving into something that is godless like most churches are headed but we're trying to get the authentic restored to us, that early church that was born in fire and power in the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago and get back to that. Uh, um, you know, this is uh, most churches I've been in, this was the heart of it, trying to get back to that real authentic Christianity born in fire. Yes. And, and you know, David, uh, what you just said, um, if you if you look to the, it's in, in, in German, it's called the Kirchentag, that's the annual gathering of the Lutheran Protestant Church. They allow everybody to be there. You can be for all kinds of diverse uh, communities there, including BDS, including pro-Palestinian groups there. You find them everywhere, but the one group they don't want is Messianic believers, and I think that's important also for some people in Israel to recognize, it says those people who exclude them, who really distance them themselves, they also are enemies of Israel. Mm. And it's quite important to see that. Yeah, yeah. Some of the uh, the evangelical Lutherans uh, churches, they're quite open to it. And it's, you know, <laughs> Jesus and, and the, his Jewishness and his Jewish believers, it's a sort of a divisive issue within entire denominations themselves and not just between denominations. I preached uh, in Moravia at an annual sort of cap meeting, a summer family gathering of all the Lutheran churches in, in Moravia in Eastern Czech Republic. And they wanted to hear about restoration of Israel. They were very interested and they invited us to come and speak on that particular topic. And those were Lutheran churches there. Amen. Okay, so uh, we just appreciate everyone tuning in here. Appreciate uh, uh, Jurgen laboring in the word with us on these things. There was a lot that he covered. You can watch it again uh, um, over on our Facebook page or on our YouTube channel. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to have Jurgen back speaking a little more on Paul, the Jewish apostles. And I've heard some of what he says on that, that goes beyond the little bit he gave us today about Paul wanting to be back in Jerusalem and all. There's some just some fascinating f facts and, and scriptures and all that uh, Jurgen will put together for us about uh, Paul's rabbinic training and how it affected his ministry, even the point of all the letters he wrote, uh, you're going to tell us how he, he was modeling a certain Jewish teacher, rabbinic teacher that he had in Jerusalem. So please tune in next Thursday, four o'clock Jerusalem time for our ICEJ weekly webinar. 
Also make sure to be here next Wednesday at 4 p.m. for our global prayer gathering. Thank you again for joining us. Shalom from Jerusalem and Jürgen from Germany. Yes, Shalom from Stuttgart. <laughs> yes. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content. that the Feast of Tabernacles is called a Feast of the Lord. Many times people come to me and they say, Jürgen, we really like the Feast of Tabernacles of the Christian Embassy. Now let me tell you, the Feast of Tabernacles is not a Feast of the Christian Embassy. This is a feast where God says, this is my feast. And we as Christian Embassy for now more than 42 years, we have the incredible privilege to be stewards, uh, to be organizers of this feast here in Jerusalem. And what a blessing it is to see the nations of the world coming year after year to celebrate this feast of the Lord. And then the Lord calls in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, he gives it a special name. He says, those feasts, they are my appointed times. The Hebrew word for that is the word moed. And the best way how you could probably explain a moed is like a specific calendar entries where God says, that's the time when I want to meet with you. So in a way, there is an open standing invitation of the Lord where the Lord says, I already have a date in my calendar that where I want to meet you right here in Jerusalem. And of course, I'm fully aware that the Lord is everywhere to be found at any time, at any location. However, there are special times where the Lord wants to meet us in unique ways. And we hear this so many times from pilgrims coming up from around the world, how special this time was in Jerusalem. They said it's really, we met with God right here. And when the people of Israel were coming to celebrate the feast, they went into the temple uh, according to this, uh, along this uh, gigantic staircase. And if you follow me along those staircases, you will notice something very quickly that each one of those stairs that are walking up to the temple has a slight different size. And this wasn't because the Jewish people couldn't do it better at the time 2000 years ago, but the rabbi said this was very very intentionally done because they said coming up to the house of the Lord to meet the Lord during the Feast of Tabernacles or to any other occasion should never become a routine. So to speak, you need to think about every single step that you take into the presence of God. And what a beautiful parallel that is also for our experience. 
We can tell you so many stories how people experienced the very presence of the Lord each year in a different way. There is never a routine where we know things were happening the same way how last year. Each year the Lord shows up in fresh and in new and dynamic ways. And I want to impersonally invite you to join us this year. Join us as we go up to the mountain of the Lord to meet him here in Jerusalem. I look forward seeing you here in Jerusalem.